Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Uh, starting off a little different here today, just so I could uh, remind you that we stopped in the middle of Chapter 31 last week, and we will be picking up where we left off. Uh, if you'll recall, Baz and Emma have made their way to the uh, reading district in the City of Fortune. So unlike in Erstwhile, where the libraries are all spread throughout the city, here in Fortune there is a single district where basically all of the, the libraries are on a, uh, a single square, or I guess it's a circle, all facing one another like a giant cul-de-sac. Uh, and at the center of that circle is the Conservatory of Fortune, and uh, when we left off last week, there uh, was a old conservator uh, standing up on a little platform uh, giving a sermon to a crowd that was assembled there. And he was separated from the crowd by a line of conservator militiamen. So uh, that is setting the stage. And now we are going to listen to that conservator's sermon this week, which is really a... Uh, a parable about uh, a man named Devon Stair. This is obviously some world building here, but uh, uh, the uh, the things that occur in this parable are also going to kind of echo throughout the rest of the series. So it is relevant here, uh, but it's also kind of like a story inside of the story. So uh, I hope you uh, you enjoy it. So here we go. Picking up at page 268 of the printed version of Declaimer's Discovery, which is approximately the middle of chapter 31. Be not like the one who named himself Messerem, the preacher proclaimed, full of spite and hubris, for you will fall just as he did. Spurn not the scribe's path as Messerem sought to, or else consign yourselves to eternal suffering. Gah, just another ordinary sermon, Emma said. She turned as if to go, but they'd worked far enough into the crowd that many behind them were now trying to get closer. The tide of humanity was irresistible, and instead of departing, they were pushed even closer to the barrier of conservator militiamen. Fear not the darkness! The vicar continued. His voice was shrill, but carried an authority that made Baz want to listen. Fear not the darkness, the conservator repeated, for even when your circumstances seem unbearable, those who hold to the scribe's path are rewarded. When thy faith slips, think on the seven trials of Devonstair the Steadfast. Emma groaned, as if about to hear an old relative tell the same story for the hundredth time. Baz, however, listened with a bit of interest. 
Tax had used to tell him stories, and before that his father had as well, though he'd died before Baz was old enough to hold onto more than a few memories. It is written in the scribe's great book of lessons that Mesorem was the most powerful declaimer of his age, so strong that he could manipulate reality itself, able to visit past events and change them, thus altering the future. With such unconscionable might at his disposal, he made himself king over all the world. The ultimate despot, accountable to no man. His very voice made grown men tremble, women weep, and children wail. He became known far and wide as the Khan of Despair, Ralmos in the old tongue. He ruled for, well, some say forever, and perhaps that was once even true. When one is powerful enough to alter time itself, who knows what is possible? But even when Mesrem walked the earth, men still lived their own small lives. Devonstair was one such man, a man of little means. He couldn't read, wasn't bound, had no particular skills. He served as a cook in one of the barracks that housed Mesrem's army. He had a sister, a wife, and a daughter. It was a simple life, but he had his health, his family, and his faith, reading the scribe's lessons each day. A habit, the preacher said, managing to glower at the crowd through his unseeing eyes, that each of you must make your own. Messerlem also had a family, a son for whom he cared almost as much as his power, and his wife, whom he kept locked away in a high tower, save for when he wished her pleasure. One day, Messerem received word of a soldier who had spoken ill of the treatment to which he subjected his wife. Knowing he would appear petty for openly punishing the man, he instead sent word to the kitchens in the man's barracks to slip poison into the soldier's food. That kitchen was the same kitchen in which Devonstair spent his days. Indeed, he was its head cook, and when he received words of Messerem's order, he refused it, for the soldier had spoken truth, and Devonstair would kill no man for uttering true words. Messerem was ill-pleased, ordering Devonstair imprisoned in the deepest dungeon. His only companions were darkness and rats. Most men would have gone mad, and even Devonstair, a man of faith, was shaken. How could he have stood for what was right and be permitted to suffer so? But on the third night of his detention, he had a dream. He was on a high mountain at the entrance to a cave. Far off in the distance, a city sparkled on the horizon, grand and triumphant. And out of the glare cast by that city came a shape, a blissful creature, long and flowing, ivory flesh marked by the words of the Trinity. The Illumined One landed before Devonstair and spoke, not in the voice of a sacred creature, but that of a man, of the Enigma himself. He spoke unto Devonstair these hallowed words, This is the first of seven trials you must endure for the good of all the world and the path upon which the scribes have set it. Hold your faith, and you will be rewarded by serving as our hand of justice, the blade that saves the world. Faith restored and steeled by Prontvi Lextor's words, 
Devonstair suffered with grace in the void of Messerlem's dungeon for ten years. Time moved on, Devonstair forgotten. Then a war began, and Messerlem's army required men. The prisons were scoured, any man able to wield a weapon conscripted. It is written that Devonstair was found meditating in the compound's deepest cell, clothed in linens that seemed freshly laundered. Even the jailer had forgotten he was there, hadn't sent food to him in years. Yet, when Devonstair stood, it was as if he'd been incarcerated for ten minutes, not ten years. He was released, given a helmet and a spear, and sent abroad to fight a war, the details of which are neither important nor remembered. A tugging at Baz's sleeve tore his attention away from the conservator's tail. Come on, the crowd's thinning. Emma said, indicating with her head a direction away from the conservatory. Baz knew he should go. All it would take would be for an errant elbow to knock his hat from his head, exposing his brand, and he'd be caught. But there was something in the vicar's sermon that held him, made him yearn to know what happened next. Just a minute, he said, looking back at the conservator. Two bloody years later, the war was won, Messerlem's domain expanded. Devonstair returned home in search of his wife and daughter. His wife he found, and their reunion was one of greatest joy. But Devonstair's joy was tempered when he learned that his daughter had been taken by Messerlem, first as a concubine, then as a wife, and her mind poisoned until she believed her father a traitor. Messerlem may have forgotten about Devonstair, but even in ignorance he punished the poor man. Still, Devonstair had his wife and his faith, and he attempted to rebuild his life as best he could. He remained in the army, slowly promoted through the ranks, until one day he was appointed an executioner, tasked with carrying out the sentences exacted upon criminals. Even with Messerlem as king, the position was considered an honor, carrying out the land's justice. For a time, Devonstair was content, thinking he had achieved what the Illumined One had told him all those years ago. But soon, Devonstair learned the falsehood of his belief. It was tradition for the condemned to be hooded, the cowl only removed as their necks were bared for the blade. One day, he was called on to carry out the sentence of a woman who had participated in a larceny that had left a shopkeeper dead. Though her hand had not struck the killing blow, under the law a conspirator was accountable for the acts of her co-conspirators and sentenced to the same fate. The woman's crimes were read aloud, her head settled onto the block, the hood removed. It was Devonstair's sister, whom he hadn't seen since before prison. Sister, Devonstair cried, is it true that you committed this crime? Yes, she replied, but have mercy on me, brother. I was lost without you and going hungry. Devonstair's eyes burned with regret that he hadn't been there to provide for his sibling. But just as he had refused to carry out Messerem's murder, he refused to accept one, even his own flesh and blood, from the just consequences of her actions. Devonstair's blade was quiet as a sigh as it fell through the air, then flesh, then bone, 
slicing away his sister's life, a part of his own life, too. For a time after that, Devonstair lost his way, heartlessly killing any put before him without regard to the justness of their sentence. Word of his apparent devotion to duty reached Messerdem's ears. Not realizing who Devonstair was, Messerdem had him promoted to the captain of his household guard, where his first assignment was to escort one of Messerdem's wives to the market. When Devonstair arrived at the woman's chambers, he was overjoyed to find that it was his very own daughter, taken from him along with his freedom all those years ago. But as his wife had tried to tell him, her mind had been soured, corrupted to believe Devonstair a criminal, worthy only of contempt and abasement. Devonstair's daughter screamed for her husband. It was one of only two times that Devonstair would meet Messerem face to face. When the Khan of Despair learned who Devonstair was, he did not yell, did not grow angry, did not even ask how Devonstair had survived his dungeons. No, Messerem simply smiled, an expression like a storm front peeking over a blue horizon. The Khan of Despair never raged. Rather, it was the serenity with which he carried out his acts of barbarity that cast fear into the hearts of men. I thought to punish you with a slow death, Messerem said to Devonstair, tone like honey spread over maggoty bread. But now it is long life with which I shall curse you. Messerem began to speak in the words of the Trinity. He was a declaimer and needed no book to cast his spells. Devonstair's vision blurred, and when his sight returned, Messerlem still stood before him, arm wrapped around a woman. But rather than Devonstair's daughter, it was Devonstair's wife consumed in the Khan's embrace. Devonstair reached out a hand in protest, but his words died in his throat. He remembered their wedding, the joy over the birth of their daughter her cries as he'd been dragged away to the dungeons. But he also remembered a different life, one of loneliness where he'd never married, never had a daughter. Devonstair collapsed to the floor, grabbing at a head full of two contradictory lifetimes, one real, the other also real. Messerem had done what the stories had said him capable of, altered the past to suit his whims, created a new branch on what, until that moment, had been the straight path of Devonstair's life, a branch where all Devonstair's joys were lost to him. Devonstair was stripped of his possessions and thrown from Messerem's castle. For many years he lived as a beggar, plagued by his memories of a double life and by a realization that slowly dawned upon him that as time moved on, he was forgetting what had once been his true life. He could no longer picture his daughter's face, no longer feel the brush of his wife's lips upon his own. He found himself facing the same plight his poor sister had, steal or starve. And while Devonstair was a man of principle, the cold hand of hunger robs even the most steadfast of their beliefs. That night, Devonstair was surprised to find the door of the shop he had decided to burglarize unlocked. 
Entering, he found the shopkeeper seated at an armchair, thumbing through a book. He was dressed in a colorful robe and didn't show the least surprise at Devonstair's unauthorized entry. Indeed, he invited Devonstair in and offered him the book he was reading. It was The Lessons. Laying eyes on the scribe's sacred text for the first time in many years, Devonstair's faith was rekindled. The memories of his life were just whispers on the winds of time now, but Messerlem had not robbed him of his beliefs, nor of the vision he'd received in the depths of that dungeon, of the illumined one proclaiming that if he only held the faith, that if he could remain steadfast through his suffering, he would find great reward. When Devonstair looked up from the book's cover, the man in the colorful clothing was gone, and Devonstair remained in the shop, tending it for many years, reconnecting with the sacred texts and once more finding a sort of inner peace that, if not filling the void left by the loss of his family, at least laying a salve over it that reduced his woe. But Messerem was not yet finished with him, and one day he was accosted in his shop by several soldiers. They made the curious demand of him that he strip and dress himself in a military uniform, the same he'd worn during his years as an executioner. Then they shackled him and took him back to the castle. A crowd was gathered at the killing grounds. The condemned was there already, hooded and shaking beside the headsman's block. The guards shoved Devonstair up the gallows stairs and put an axe in his hands. Then one read the crimes of the convict and moved her roughly into position, finally removing her hood. She was bruised and broken, eyes frantic and confused, as if she didn't understand where she was or what was about to happen. Devonstair realized that, just as Messerlem's temporal meddling had nearly driven him mad, so too had his wife suffered. He knelt before her, grasping her by the chin and forcing her to look at him. You may remember me only as one remembers a dream, he told her, but we shall meet again when the path circles and we are reborn, to live our lives together once more, and I will be yours and you mine. Until then, know that I love you. For a moment, there was comprehension in his wife's eyes, pushing through the confusion and panic, and she gave him the smallest of smiles but then her expression clouded once more, and Devonstair knew what he must do. Messerem meant this as yet another punishment, but Devonstair saw it for what it truly was. Mercy is always just. As he'd done so many times before, he raised the axe high above his head, let it drop. The thud of the blade hitting block was a thunderclap in his soul the impact of his wife's head in the basket, a melancholic symphony in his heart. He was led away by the guards, stripped to his skin and dressed in rags. You are a slave now, one of the guards told him. Yes, Devonstair replied. Yet in his mind he added, but not to the master you believe. My master is vengeance, and he demands but one thing. Devonstair's axe was replaced by a mop, and he was set to cleansing the cobbles of the killing ground, washing away the stains of all those he'd executed. 
He scrubbed until his hands were raw and tainted with the scarlet testaments of the dead, an infection that he could never wash away. As the years progressed, he was assigned the most menial and disgusting of tasks, abused and abased by all in Messerem's household. It was enough to drive even the sanest of men to madness, and Devonstare was far from hale. But the words of the illumined one pushed him onward, for they were all he had left to him. Surely he was nearing the end of his trials, for what more did he have to give? In the end, it was a simple thing that delivered Devonstare. He'd been set to cleaning the chamber pots in the quarters of Messerem's son. The boy was the only thing about which Mesterim cared besides his power, a cruel young man prone to drink and sadism. His rooms were at the top of a castle tower, opening to a grand balcony overlooking the city. By this time, Devonstair had grown old, and it was a cruelty just to make him walk all those flights to the sun's chambers. When he finally reached the tower's peak, he was gasping, knees afire with arthritis. "'Slave, come here!' the son shouted from the balcony. Devonstair knew nothing good could come from heeding that command, but ignoring it would only be worse. Limping out to the balcony, he found it crowded with the son's coterie, many already deep in their cups, though the hour was still early. "'Clean up my wine, slave!' Messerem's son threw his cup at Devonstair, hitting him in the face and splattering wine across his frayed tunic and the balcony's tiled floor. With a cry, Devonstair fell to a knee, drawing laughs from the assembled entourage. Clean! cried the son. His voice was sloppy with drink, and he took a stumbling step toward Devonstair. He nearly fell, catching himself on the balcony's railing. Devonstair began scrubbing at the floor, eyes burning from the wine, but also the shame. That burning began to creep through him, igniting within him a rage that had been kindling ever since that day he'd first denied Messerem his petty revenge and been thrown into that dark dungeon. As he scrubbed, he inched closer to Messerem's son until he was right at the young man's feet. The son laughed thinking Devonstair had come to grovel. But Devonstair's subjugation was at an end. With a cry, he pushed himself off the ground and shoved Messerem's son in the chest. The young man was too surprised to scream, merely toppling off the balcony, eyes wide and arms flailing. His life ended on the cobbles far below. Before the first of the son's guests began to scream, Messerem himself appeared, he didn't walk in through the door or appear from an antechamber. He was just absent one moment, then present the next. He took in the scene with equanimity, eyes playing over the horrified onlookers before settling on the Devonstair. His lips pursed, but otherwise he hardly looked a man who had just lost his only child. Devonstair smiled at his long-time oppressor. A taste of what you've given me all these long years, Devonstair said, looking over the balcony, down to the ruined body of Messerem's son. You poor small man, Messerem said. A minor thing like death holds no sway over me. To me, 
time is but a tale yet to be written, and I need only speak to turn it down the path of my desire. Messerlem began to speak the same words he'd used to rob Devonstair of his wife. But this time, Devonstair's vision did not blur, and nothing appeared to change. The Khan of Despair continued to speak, chanting in a slur of syllables incomprehensible to Devonstair's simple mind. Gradually, Messerlem's facade of calm began to break, his voice growing frantic, true emotion blooming on his face. Rage lit his eyes until they shone like a dragon's maw, spitting fire at any who met his gaze. Finally, Messerlem ceased to speak, shouting at Devonstair, "'What have you done?' Until that moment, Devonstair had not realized what he'd done. Indeed, he may never have fully grasped the inner workings of how he'd stopped Messerim from altering time to revive his son. But Devonstair, whether knowingly or not, had become too intertwined with Messerim's own life for the Khan to wipe him from existence. Annihilating Devonstair would have left too many holes in Messerim's own life, and so long as Devonstair continued to exist, so too did his act of pushing Messerlem's son into the abyss. "'I have finally served my life's purpose,' Devonstair replied to Messerlem. "'I am the hand of justice, the blade that saves the world. Today these hands were as good as swords, and the scribe's judgment has been rendered.' Before Messerlem could react, Devonstair leapt from the balcony." disappearing from view. Yet, when Messerlem looked down over the rail, all he saw below was his son's corpse. Devonstair was gone. Messerlem flew into a rage, calling down powers upon the city the likes of which had never been seen. Lances of ice shot from the skies, balls of fire erupted from the ground. Buildings crumbled and people perished by the tens of thousands. Messerlem's rage didn't cease until the city was razed, his kingdom no more. All that remained were mounds of ash and rubble, reaching so high into the sky that the peaks were covered in snow. And so the icy heights were formed so many years ago. And so also Messerlem's grasp on all the world slipped, and he fell into madness, obsessively searching for a way to recover his son, doomed to an eternity of sorrow and rage, just as he'd once done to Devonstair. And so, my brothers and sisters, the blind conservator concluded, when times seem dark and you feel you've lost your way, remember Devonstair the steadfast. He suffered so that we could all be free. Remember him and keep the faith. All right. Hello there again, everyone. And uh, welcome back to D.D. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is February 5th, 2023, as I record this, which is episode number 27. Uh, yes, episode number 27 of season two of the podcast, and episode number 54 overall. I hope you all had a great week. Uh, and a great weekend. I guess this is coming out on a Monday, so I uh, hope you're all getting ready for the, the week ahead 
here, and I hope you enjoyed uh, the second half of Chapter 31 of Declaimer's Discovery. Uh, I know that may have felt like a bit of a tangent to some people, but I do like the idea of the having stories within stories, so I hope you'll indulge me a little. And like I said in the intro, um, there are echoes of that story throughout the series, so this is not the last you will hear of uh, Devin Stare, the, sed- the steadfast in his seven trials. <clears throat> All right. Uh, of course, the big news this week, if you're a newsletter subscriber, Into the Dragon's Maw, part five of the Spoken Books Uprising, is now available for pre-order, and I have also revealed the cover, which I think is uh, is a pretty cool one with the uh, the flaming dragon's skull on the cover. Uh, I encourage you to go uh, check that out wherever you get your ebooks. Um, if you head to the link books2read.com slash into the dragon's maw, that's books the number two read.com slash into the dragon's maw. Uh, you can uh, find a link to your favorite ebook retailer and put in your pre-order. The book will be coming out uh, March 10th, 2023. <clears throat> and uh, that link will work if, if you're so if you're listening in the future, that link will still work even once the pre-order is over it'll obviously just take you to the the site where you can purchase it now so uh head on head on over there if you are interested uh right so that's the big news out of the way this week uh so i think we're just gonna head on over to our quote of the week this one is brought to us by pierce brown who is author of uh the Red Rising series, at least Red Rising is the first book in the series. Uh, I forget if, I think the series is also called that, but uh, but if not, Red Rising, Pierce Brown. <clears throat> Steel is power, money is power, but of all the things in all the worlds, words are power. So, being an author who writes a series where magic is read aloud from rare books... I'm often going on about the importance of spreading knowledge through the written word and spoken word. But often it's better to keep your mouth shut and use those organs on either side of your head. Slow down for a minute. Listen to the world around you. That's why French artist Henry Miller placed his sculpture of a giant with its ear tilted to the sky in a busy French square to remind passers-by of just that. It's a lesson we all could use. The next time you're in a meeting, wait to speak until you've heard what others have to say. Sitting in a boring presentation? Well, you're stuck there. Try to actually listen and you may learn something. Favorite song playing on the radio? Turn it up and really think about the words. What is the artist trying to express? As Epictetus so wisely said 2,000 years ago, we have two (laughs) two years... As Epictetus so wisely said 2,000 years ago, we have two ears and one mouth so that we can listen twice as much as we speak. So listen up. All right, and as always, if you have a favorite fantasy quote, uh, feel free to email it to me, dtkane at dtkane.com, and it may be featured in a future edition of uh, Fantasy Quote of the Week. Uh, this week's was uh, once again submitted by Jan. Thank you for your ongoing participation in Quote of the Week, Jan, and keep the awesome quotes coming. And other than that, I believe that is all 
for this week, uh, I guess we should go over next week's reading assignment, which I really should prepare ahead of time, but let's see here. Uh, we'll definitely be reading chapter 32 of Declaimer's Discovery. Let me see how long that is. Hmm. Relatively long. So we'll read chapter 32. Oh, yeah. We'll just be reading chapter 32 of Declaimer's Discovery. Uh, next week. Jeez, chapter 33 is a long one. See, now here's an insider perspective. Uh, I didn't start the podcast until uh, I had already written the Actus Trials in Declaimer's Discovery. And starting with Declaimer's Stand, I really made an effort to write both shorter paragraphs and shorter chapters, partially because uh, <laughs> it's easier to podcast them when they're a little shorter. But uh, we're still in Declaimer's Discovery, which was completely written before the podcast began. And chapter 33 is a, a massive one. So... Um, it might be a game-time decision for me next week, but we may read the first part of Chapter 33 next week as well. So why don't you just go ahead and read Chapters 32 and 33, and we'll at least read 32 next week, and maybe you'll get some bonus reading for the first part of Chapter 33 as well. Okay, that's really it uh, now. So until next time, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com podcast. D.T. Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author, or send D.T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtkane.com. See you next week.